Uh, Take your Bibles and and turn them with me to the book of Genesis chapter 28. Genesis 28. So, um, last week, that was quite a doozy of a chapter there, 27 last week, Uh, we ended with a, a fractured, divided family uh, the family of Isaac, which had been so blessed in so many different ways and had received amazing promises and grace from God. Uh, they're a family that started out so well and, and yet descends into such a mess where we see massive family dysfunction and everything from division to parental favoritism to lying, deceit, uh, exploitation, a disregard for God and His Word. And as I said last week, if you feel like your family is dysfunctional, know that you're in good company here. Uh, Things started out, again, so well for these folks. Isaac was the miracle child, the the son born to Abraham and Sarah in their old age and infertility. He was next in line to receive the blessings and promises of the Abrahamic covenant, promises that included possession of the land of Canaan and a multitude of offspring, and through that offspring, worldwide blessing and salvation for the world would come. What a wonderful inheritance. And though we have seen some bright spots in Isaac and Rebekah's family, we've also witnessed some significant spiritual decline as the years have gone on in their lives. We saw red flags back in chapter 25, uh, where Rebekah is pregnant with, the, with twins, and these babies are fighting against one another in the womb. And God says in a prophetic oracle that the meaning of that fetal conflict was that those two boys, Jacob and Esau, represented two nations that would be hostile to one another. And what's more, against cultural, uh, against, uh, cultural conventional wisdom, the younger son Jacob would have dominance over the older son Esau. Uh, Jacob was God's choice to receive the birthright and the inheritance and eventual leadership in the family. Uh, the division between the boys continues as they grow up, and it's heightened by parental favoritism. Isaac loves Esau the most because Esau is a great hunter who provides Isaac with really tasty food. And Rebekah's heart is drawn uh, towards Jacob, who's more, uh, the more domestic son and the, and the homebody. Esau and Jacob are, are different in many ways. Esau is emotional, impulsive, rough and gruff, and a bit dim-witted. Jacob is cool, calm, calculating, and a master schemer. In chapter 25, Jacob exploits Esau's appetites and refuses to feed him when he's hungry unless Esau agrees to sell Jacob the birthright. And then, last week in chapter 27, we saw that Isaac, older now and nearly blind and thinking he was dying soon, intended to go against God's oracle and give the patriarchal blessing to his favorite firstborn, Esau. But Rebekah and Jacob get wind of this, and so they conspire to trick Jacob. I mean, excuse me, Isaac. Jacob disguises himself as Esau. So then when Isaac verbally confers the patriarchal blessing, he thinks he's passing it on to Esau, when in truth, he's passing it on to Jacob. It was a despicable and diabolical thing to do, and it backfires in a way. Yes, Jacob now has received the blessing from Isaac, and Isaac has declared that blessing irrevocable, but Esau has discovered that he has been outwitted by Jacob again. 
And Esau, being the emotional, impulsive man that he is, is seething with anger and hatred, and he is plotting to kill Jacob. You want to talk about dysfunction and a family that could really use some biblical counseling. This is bad. This is really bad. Uh, Rebecca gets wind of Esau's plot, and, and so now she's got to get clever again, and she's got to figure out how to rescue her favorite son, Jacob. And so she intends to send Jacob to um, uh, Haran, uh, 400 miles, over 400 miles away, to take refuge with her brother Laban in Haran. And her thinking is, is that, well, once Esau cools down, I'll send for you. It's a mess. And yet, as we saw last week, God is working. He's active. Their dysfunction and their mess doesn't hinder God one bit. Everything they do is actually serving to further his plans because God will not be deterred in his mission to save the world. But God doesn't just care about the world, he cares about this family. And so in the the next little bit of scripture that we're going to read, while we're still going to see that things are still messy, uh, we're also going to see evidence of God's grace working in Isaac and Rebekah's and even in Jacob's life. Because our messiness and our dysfunction does not only not hinder God's larger global plans to bless the world, but they also don't hinder God's plans to work all things together for the good of every single person in his family, no matter how messy they may be. And so today, we're going to pick up that unfolding drama where we left off last week, so please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our God. And actually, we're going to start in, uh, near the end of chapter 27. Uh, Let's start in chapter 27, verse 41, and we'll read on down through chapter 28, verse 10. Genesis 27, starting at verse 41, God's Word says, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching, Then I will kill my older brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you've done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with, with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus, Isaac sent Jacob away. And he went to Padanaram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. 
Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. Let's pray. Flowers wither the grass. Flower, grass fades and the word of the Lord endures forever. Father, I pray that your spirit would work in the preaching of this very flawed and imperfect man who's standing up before this congregation right now. And Father, I pray for the congregation that you would open ears and open eyes so that they might clearly see and hear and believe and embrace what the Spirit has to say to Harbin's church this morning through this word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so, there are several things I want us to consider in our section today, and the first thing is God's grace in Rebecca's plan. God's grace in Rebecca's plan. With Jacob's life in danger, Rebecca must get her beloved son out of harm's way as quickly as possible. But she doesn't want to tell Isaac that his favorite son Esau is plotting murder. So, she tries another approach. Look with me at chapter 27, verse 46. She says to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be? Now, who, who in the world is she talking about? Who's she referring to? Well, flip back to the end of chapter 26 and look at verse 34. And there we're told that when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemoth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Esau had married not one, but two local girls. Not only is Esau's polygamy outside of God's standard for marriage, that's bad enough, but worse, he marries Canaanite women. And this speaks, this, this uh, continues to speak to this ongoing theme that we have seen of Esau's spiritual dullness and his complete disregard for the things of God. Uh, the, the family of Abraham was not supposed to marry, to intermarry with the evil, idolatrous Canaanites. Now, scholar Bruce Waltke notes that the Aramean wives, like Rebekah and her people back in Mesopotamia, the Aramean wives embrace the faith of their husbands, unlike the Canaanite wives who seduce their husbands to join their lifestyles and worship their gods. Uh, the Canaanites had an extremely corrupting influence. What's more, God had already revealed to Abraham that one day he's going to wipe out the Canaanites in divine justice in response to their extreme sin. And therefore, God's people ought not to have any attachment to them and their ways. But folks, Esau couldn't care less about any of these kinds of things because he doesn't care about the Lord. 
And he doesn't care about protecting and preserving the people of God from Canaanite influence. And so, uh, being the perverse and immoral man that he is, he actually is a perfect match for these Canaanite girls. Take note, men. The kind of girl that you fall for says a lot about you. And that works vice versa with the ladies as well. And likely here, in typical impulsive Esau fashion, he just saw some ladies he liked, and he just went for it without any spiritual reflection or consideration, because Esau never spiritually reflects on anything. And this should be no surprise, coming from the man whom we are told that in Genesis 25 despised his spiritual birthright, and he traded it in for a bowl of red stew. But Esau's marriage to these women doesn't just say something of Esau, it also says something of Isaac. So a year and a half ago, we were in Genesis 24, and I'm sure that you remember that sermon. Life-changing, I'm sure, you can quote every part of it. And, and, and Genesis 24, uh, that chapter, that's all about Abraham's efforts to obtain a wife for Isaac. And Abraham gets the help of his servant, and he says to his servant, you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. Abraham was absolutely adamant about this. And he sends his servant far away from Canaanite influence, back to his relatives to find a non-Canaanite wife for Isaac, which turns out to be, of course, who? Come on, guys. Rebecca! Yeah, that was an easy one. I know you're tired of just being shy. Um, it's, it's, it's against the, the backdrop of Abraham's faithful efforts in finding a bride for his son that we see Isaac's failure to show the same concern for his son Esau, probably because Esau is his favorite, and he's going to let Esau do whatever Esau wants to do. Uh, Isaac, as we talked about last time, uh, cares more about Esau in many ways than he cares about the things of God. And so Esau marries not one but two Canaanites, so we've got double trouble now. And, and the text says they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Maybe you know something of difficult in-law relationships. This was a tough one. You know, we, we've seen some division between Isaac and Rebekah these past few weeks, but here's one thing they are absolutely united on. And that's how they feel about those Canaanite girls. Having these, these wicked and moral Canaanite women around was absolute torture for them. Now, Isaac and Rebekah, as we know, are far from perfect. Uh, we've seen a lot of that. But they were believers. And so you can imagine Thanksgiving dinner was just not a fun time around Isaac's house. And so while Rebekah's main goal is to get Jacob away from home to save Jacob's life, I do not doubt for a second that Rebekah sees an important secondary benefit in all of this, that Jacob, my boy, my favorite, will get a good wife from a good family, namely mine. We'll make sure he doesn't repeat Esau's mistake and spare me and Isaac of further misery. But the whole fact that she has to go that route instead, instead of just telling Isaac the whole story, that seems really odd to me. And it seems to be a further continuation of, of this family dysfunction that's been going on. You would think that if you and your spouse had a child that was plotting to kill your other child, you would think that you and your spouse would have an open and honest conversation about that. That's not going on here. 
And there seems to be something a little underhanded in what Rebecca is doing. <clears throat> but a charitable reading of this may be that Rebecca is so concerned about Isaac's favoritism of Esau that if she tells him something that reflects negatively on Esau, maybe Isaac just is not going to take that seriously. <clears throat> And, and so, so if Rebecca is really afraid for Jacob's life, it's understandable why she might take the path of least resistance and, and focus the conversation on the one thing that she knows her and her husband would be agreed upon. John Calvin, in his Genesis commentary, has consistently given a more favorable view of Rebecca's actions in this chapter. And Calvin writes that, Rebecca, in giving another cause than the true one to her husband, may be excused from the charge of falsehood. No doubt she truly affirms that she was tormented on account of her Hittite daughters-in-law, but she prudently conceals the more inward evil, lest she should inflict a mortal wound on her husband, and also lest she should be, she, lest she should the more influence the rage of Esau. For the wicked often, Calvin says, when their crime is detected, are the more carried away with desperation. Well, maybe. But regardless, it seems to me that Rebecca's actions and the way she's going about this further evidence the fractures in this home. But whatever you may think of Rebecca's machinations, one thing is clear, that God is working. God's working behind the scenes. Again, Calvin notes that the bitter experience that Isaac and Rebekah had with Esau's wives lead them to agree to send Jacob away. Calvin writes that the wonderful providence of God is conspicuous, that Jacob neither blended nor entangled himself with the future enemies of God's people, with the Canaanites. Indeed, the anger of Esau the overhearing of the plot by Rebekah, all of these things the Lord is using to get Jacob exactly where he wants Jacob for his good, as we'll see in the weeks to come, and to bring about the fulfillment of his glorious promises. And in this way, God shows much grace and much kindness to a messy, dysfunctional people in a messy, dysfunctional family. God's an expert at using broken vessels to accomplish his will. What's more, God uses Rebecca's approach to help Isaac to finally do something right. Which leads to my second observation, which is God's grace in Isaac's revival. God's grace in Isaac's revival. <clears throat> Verse 1 of chapter 28, then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Well, praise God. Isaac's had a bumpy road. And Moses spends more time writing about Isaac's shortcomings uh, than the good things. And, and Isaac really was in a bad state for most of the last chapter, wasn't he? I mean, remember how uh, chapter 27 began in verse 1. It says, when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see. And his physical blindness seems to be also a reflection of his spiritual dimness. He was blind to many things. He was blind to his own lustful appetites. He was blind to his favoritism of Esau, his willful rebellion against the oracle of God that Jacob should receive the blessing. Y'all, Isaac practically worshipped Esau and the things that Esau could provide for him. And so Isaac's spiritual vision was dimmed. His spiritual vision was confused. He couldn't see clearly. By the way, Whenever you have desires in your heart 
that rival your desires for God, the bigger those desires are, the harder it is to see clearly. This is why in our sin, we often make choices that to an objective person watching us seem really dumb. Really dumb. That's why a man who has a great wife and wonderful kids and is well-respected in the church and has been blessed by God in so many ways can trade it all away in an adulterous fling. And that's just one of a million examples because we do all kinds of dumb things because we're blinded by selfish desires that have become bigger than God. That was Isaac's problem. But Isaac now here is seen to be doing something that is right. And that's great news to kick off chapter 28. We need some good news because because the past couple of chapters have been pretty rough. In fact, Isaac in these next few verses will be seen to be a very different Isaac than what we saw last chapter. He says, don't take a Canaanite woman. He says, find a wife in Haran from our family back in Mesopotamia. And so now Isaac is finally, finally following in his father Abraham's footsteps and and beginning to become the real patriarchal spiritual leader that he should be. I think this is evidence of, of a spiritual revival a spiritual reawakening in the heart of Isaac. And this reawakening began, I think, with that pivotal moment in the last chapter, we talked about this last week, where he realized that he had been duped and that God overturned his rebellious attempt to give Esau the blessing and saw to it that Jacob received the blessing instead. And I think that event shook Isaac to the very core of his being. Indeed, chapter 27, verse 33 says that Isaac trembled very violently. I used to read that and think, well, that that means Isaac's mad. Well, I, I don't think that that is much anymore because Isaac actually doesn't really respond with a lot of anger. Esau does. Esau wants to kill Jacob. We don't see that attitude from Isaac. Instead, what we see is humble acquiescence to God's will. Now, I'm not saying in that moment that Isaac is, you know, doing backflips and jumping for joy, but, but, he's, but he's acquiescing, he's submitting himself now. And, and when he realizes the blessing he so desperately wants to bless Esau with has gone to his brother, he says at the end of verse 33, yes, and he shall be blessed. But Esau, though, he keeps trying to fight this. He doesn't surrender. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, you know what, Dad? You're right. He shall be blessed, and he should be blessed, because that's what God said in the first place, that the older should serve the younger, and you know what, Dad? I'm done trying to fight God. I will submit to God's plan, because he knows better than I do. It's not what Esau does. Esau is begging, and crying, and pleading, and cajoling, but Isaac is done fighting. He has stubbornly fought God's will for decades on this. And the kindest, most loving thing that God does for Isaac is to finally crush Isaac's dreams. That sounds harsh. But those dreams were idolatrous dreams from idolatrous desires that were rival gods in Isaac's life and that were choking his spiritual life and blinding his spiritual vision. You know, it's, it's been a while since I've done a, a Lord of the Rings reference, so nerd alert, here comes one. But Isaac reminds me of King Theoden. 
in the two towers. Theoden was a great king. Uh, He was a good and powerful lord. But an evil, lying influence began to slowly, over time, corrupt his thoughts. And he began to change, and he declined physically and mentally and spiritually until the point where his whole world shrunk to a claustrophobic place that was filled with his own dark thoughts. And it took Gandalf, who in the Lord of the Rings is is kind of an angelic kind of figure, it took Gandalf's power to, to drive away those evil influences, and when that happened, Theoden revived. He woke up, his mind was healed, and he began to see the world in clear colors again. That reminds me of Isaac. Isaac was on a long downward decline as he listened to lies in his own heart and and followed his fleshly lust, and, and his spiritual vision became increasingly dim. And in chapter 27, he is at his lowest, most pathetic point. But in the wake of God denying Isaac his idols and taking away Isaac's dream of an empire for Esau, Isaac is shaken up. And in the aftermath, Isaac's spiritual vision begins to return and he snaps out of this long, dark dream that he's been in. Friend, the kindest thing that God can do to us is smash our idols and our hopes and our dreams if those things have become greater to us than God, things that are choking our spirits and blinding our minds. I wonder if there's anything in your life like that right now that has been more important to you than God. And it's choked away your desire for God. And it's choked away your submission to God. My prayer for you this morning is that, is that today would be uh, the beginning of a wake-up call to you, and God would kindly smash those idols so that you may see Him more clearly and cherish Him more dearly and embrace the better things that He has for you in Him. And so now here in chapter 28, we see Isaac again give the blessing to Jacob. And this is very, very important, because in chapter 27, when he blessed Jacob, he did it under pretense, right? In the last chapter, he did it under pretense, because he was thinking that the one who he was was blessing was Esau. But this time, in chapter 28, Isaac blesses Jacob of his own free will, with eyes wide open. Really, it's like he's doubling down on the blessing, and he's making it clear to everyone, including Esau that he has now humbly and even joyfully submitted to God's will. And so now a spiritually revived Isaac blesses Jacob, and he really expands on some things that he said in the last chapter when he was giving out the blessing. Here he says to Jacob in verse 3, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. That should sound familiar to you. That's an echo of of the creation mandate. And then Isaac says to Jacob, may he multiply you that you may become a community, I'm sorry, a company of peoples. Now that's huge. We know from past chapters that the promises to Abraham includes lots of offspring, but there's something more here. He says, may you become a company of peoples. Now, that, that is certainly an echo of the Abrahamic promise to be a father of many peoples, many nations. That term nations refers to the various ethnic people groups of the world, the different language groups. But this phrase here that he uses, 
company of peoples is interesting, particularly the word company. It's the Hebrew word kahal, and it carries the idea of an assembly, a congregation. And so Isaac is foreseeing that through Jacob will come a multi-ethnic, multi-racial people that are united as one assembly, one company, one congregation. John Calvin writes that Isaac desires that Jacob grow into a multitude of nations, that he should produce many people who might combine into one body under the same head. As if he had said, let there arise from you, Jacob, many tribes who shall constitute one people. Brothers and sisters, does that sound familiar to you? Any, any of this ringing a bell as far as what in the world he might be talking about here? What singular entity is there that, though of many tribes, actually becomes one people? Anybody want to say it? Anybody? Who has courage to say it? Okay, that's not quite the the word I'm looking for. What entity? What collection of people? The church, yes, whom Jesus is the head of and united with. So we can combine those two answers, that's great. The church. By the way, that Hebrew word kahal, very often in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is translated as ekklesia, the Greek word for church, the called out ones. This is remarkable. When we, when we read these patriarchal narratives, we often read them in anticipation of the coming of the nation of Israel. Jacob's name later gets changed to Israel. From him come the 12 tribes. But Isaac, who in chapter 27 expressed such dullness of spiritual vision, such spectacular short-sightedness, suddenly now has a vision that is incredible seeing way past the horizon of Old Testament Israel and seeing ahead to even greater things to come as he recognizes that through Jacob shall come a company of peoples consisting of every tribe and tongue and language, a group spectacularly diverse and yet one. In chapter 27, Isaac couldn't see past his own selfish desires. He couldn't see past the satisfaction of his own palate and taste buds. But in chapter 28, he's been revived, and he's been awakened, and he prophesies and anticipates the church even more clearly than Father Abraham ever did. Indeed, he sees in shadowy form something that becomes very clear in the New Testament when the Apostle Paul, speaking of the great divide between Jews and Gentiles, writes that for he, Christ, he himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And then, any doubt about the nature of the blessing that God is giving Jacob, he declares it as plain as day in verse 4. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. How different Isaac is compared to the Isaac that we see in the last chapter. He's free from the bondage of his own lust and appetites. He's free from his idolatrous devotion to Esau. He stands as a man whose vision is clear as ever, 
He stands as a man of renewed faith. Indeed, in spite of all Isaac's foibles and falls, it is so encouraging to see him here, and it's so encouraging that he actually shows up again in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11. In the great hall of faith chapter, he shows up there alongside his father Abraham, and we are told in Hebrews 11.20 that by faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob. Genesis 28 is the last time Isaac is featured in the narrative. The next time we're going to see him is in chapter 35 where he dies. And therefore, it is so heartening to me, especially in light of kind of all the bad stuff we've been looking at lately about Isaac, it is so heartening to me that Isaac's final notes in this story are good ones. He started well, had a really bad slump, but then in the end, he stands tall once again as he stands in faith. And Isaac's revival should be a practical encouragement to you and me. Isaac was far from perfect. He had a lot of mistakes in his life. And surely he did many things that he regretted. But here in chapter 28, with Isaac as an older man now, with more years behind them, behind him than in front of him, some, some of y'all know what that's like. I've reached that point as well. More of my life behind me than in front. Isaac here as an older man is an example of how it is never too late to do the right thing. It's an example of how God's grace can still powerfully work in your life. That no matter what your past is, and some of you have really messed up pasts, and your pastor stands first in line of those messed up ones, believe me. But no matter what your past has been, and the falls that you have had, no Christian brother, no Christian sister, that this moment is a moment where you can really repent. And you can really experience this cleansing. And you can really honor the Lord and glorify Him and allow yourself to no longer be defined by the regrets of the past. But you can instead embrace and trust God for the future and begin to walk in step with Him. No matter where you're at, no matter what you've done, no matter how late in your life you may be, it's not too late. And oh, if only Esau could have gotten that point. But he doesn't, which leads to my next observation, which is God's grace denied to proud Esau. God's grace denied to proud Esau. Verse 6, Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob, sent him away to Badan Aram to take a wife from there, that he blessed him, he, direct, as he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw this, when he saw all of these things happening, and that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son. Esau continues to prove himself here to be really spiritually dense. He just doesn't get it. It's interesting to note that it takes him this long, <laughs> takes him this long to realize that the marriages to the Canaanite girls displeased Isaac. I think, again, this speaks of something of, of Esau's uh, self-centeredness, only caring about getting what he wants right now. But, but he finally clues in that, that marrying these ladies, marrying Judith and, and Basemouth was a bad idea. And he actually seems to experience at least some measure of conviction over this choice. And so he determines to do something about it. But as typical of the godless person, 
He just compounds his sin by adding on to it. Text says in verse eight that when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father. Hmm. Probably Esau is thinking he's already lost the blessing and, and, and he wants to get back into, his, into dad's good graces. All right, dad doesn't like Canaanite women, okay. He wants us to marry within the family, okay. So I'll go to Ishmael's side of the family and I'll marry a non-Canaanite. That will make him happy. But this is really problematic on two counts. Number one, he's still married to the Canaanite girls. And number two, he marries into the family of Ishmael, Isaac's half-brother. Why? Now, why would that be a problem, do you think? Because Ishmael and his people have been rejected by God already. The Ishmaelites are outside of God's covenant people. Uh, Esau hasn't improved his prospects at all. Uh, to go from Canaanite to Ishmaelite is, is a lateral move. It doesn't improve his standing in the family. Most importantly, it doesn't improve his standing with God. Now, he is three times a polygamist, married to three women outside of God's people, so he's more guilty of sin than ever before. Ian Duguid notes that this is a vivid picture of the way of the heart without God. Even when such a person tries to do the things that are moral and upright, they just increase their sin because they don't understand the nature of God or their own depravity. Esau is is really a living example of of the godless that we see in Romans chapter 1 verse 21, where as a result of their constant stubborn resistance of God, they become futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts are darkened, and claiming to be wise, they become fools. And so even the the good things, I put good in quotation marks here, even the, the good things the unbeliever does turns out to be futile and turns out to be sin and are ultimately of no value because they aren't done in faith and they're not done for God and his glory. And this this is Esau. This is Esau, proud and stubborn his whole life, living by his gut, wise in his own eyes, trusting his own instincts over God's will and God's way and God's plan. Not only does he not trust God, but he's fighting God at every turn, proving the scripture true that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And Esau lacked the spiritual insight to see that the better path for him would would actually be something much simpler, much less complicated, which would have been just to simply humble himself, repent of his past sins, fully embrace the promises of God that were bound up in the blessing given to Jacob, and to be a godly witness to his two pagan wives, Uh, hoping with all God's people and the worldwide blessing that would come through Jacob's offspring. That would have been the wise path for Esau. But Esau is ever reckless, ever impulsive, just, just following his gut in the moment. And that's the problem. He favors his own intuition over God's word. He favors immediate gratification over the better things that God has in store for his people. He cares more about pleasing his father Isaac than about pleasing the Lord. From the despising of his birthright until now, Esau continues to disregard everything that is important to God, and he simply adds more sin on top of all the others. If you're here this morning or or, or watching by video, and you're not yet a Christian, the solution for you is not to try to work harder to earn the grace of God or men, 
but instead to receive the free gift of God's grace through trusting in God's son, Jesus Christ, the offspring of, Ab- uh, the offspring of Jacob. Uh, Jesus, in his death on the cross, took the punishment for sinners so that any sinner who might trust in him would be free from God's punishment and could enjoy God's favor and God's blessing. Don't be like Esau, trying to figure out how to be righteous enough to mitigate the sins of the past and justify yourself. Instead, the Apostle Paul says that faith is counted as righteousness to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So we have seen here God's grace in Rebecca's plan. We've seen God's grace in Isaac's revival. We've seen grace denied to proud Esau. final thing I want us to consider as we close out this section is God's grace and Jacob's discipline. God's grace and Jacob's discipline. Verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. So Jacob now is sent away from home to Haran. And you gotta understand, this is not a little day camping trip here. This is a journey of over 400 miles. Maybe next week I'll put up a map and and you can see the journey. It's gonna take him many, many weeks to get there. And and what's striking about this is that what is happening with Jacob is actually the opposite of what happened with Abraham. Abraham came came from Haran and and went into Canaan. Of course, again, Canaan was the special land of promise that Abraham's offspring would inherit. And so it's striking now that Jacob is, is being sent away from the land of promise. He's going the opposite way of Abraham. Jacob is a man in exile. But not only is Jacob having to leave the land, he's leaving it as a fugitive, running from a brother who wants to kill him. What's more, Jacob is traveling alone. Unlike Abraham's servant who who went to Haran to find a bride for Isaac, who would have traveled with an entourage and the safety and protection that comes with it, Jacob is on his own, traveling through harsh and dangerous, rugged environments full of wild beasts and dangerous people. Remember, Jacob was the homebody. He was the domestic type. He was mama's favorite. And this kind of journey would have been more suitable for tougher and more rugged Esau. Esau felt at home camping under the stars and and, and hunting for food. Esau would have loved a trip like this. But Jacob now is running from the comforts and securities of his father's house and his mother's love. Not only is he moving further away from the land that's supposed to be his, but he's on this journey with absolutely nothing to his name. He's got nothing but a walking staff and rocks for pillows, as we'll see next week. Friends, think about it. This is the man who has fought and wrestled and schemed his whole life trying to get what he thought he should have, and at this point, he's got absolutely nothing to show for it. Nothing. And it's Jacob's sin that's gotten him in this predicament. He's brought this entire situation upon himself. This is really hard. And folks, it is about to get harder. Earlier I said that God in his providence is graciously orchestrating the things that are happening in Isaac and Rebekah's troubled family for the purpose of getting Jacob exactly where he wants him. Well, where Jacob is going is Haran. That's where God wants him. 
And as far as Jacob knows, he's going to Haran for safety and to find a wife. But God has some additional plans for Jacob. God's got got some plans of his own in store. Because while Jacob is running from a bitter brother who wants to murder him, he's running for refuge to an uncle who wants to exploit him. In the weeks ahead, we will see Jacob, the master schemer and trickster, meeting his match. And his involvement with Laban will mean 20 years of harsh labor and exploitation and deceits. If you think Jacob is good at tricking, you ain't seen nothing yet. Verse 6 says that Isaac sent Jacob away, but you know what? We know better, don't we? We know it's really God who sent him away. God is doing this to Jacob. And why? Not because God is mean and harsh, but because God loves Jacob so much. You see, while Esau had proven himself unfit for the covenant, man, oh man, so has Jacob. And Jacob needs a serious transformation if he's going to be the next great faithful patriarch of Israel and be what God wants him to be. And, and if, he's re- if he's to really enjoy the blessing that God has for his people, this ex- painful experience has to come. What God has ordained for Jacob in the years to come is not God's cruel attack. Instead, it is God's kind and precious discipline. Jacob has some really important lessons that he has to learn. And, that's, and those lessons are only going to be learned through the fire. The psalmist understood something of this when he said in Psalm 119, 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, I keep your word. The psalmist sees affliction as something that is beneficial to him. Before the times of affliction came, he went off on his own way, doing his own thing, stubbornly disobedient to God and self-destructing his life. But the times of affliction changed his course and resulted in obedience to God's word and all the blessings and joy that come with that obedience. A few verses later, the psalmist writes, I know, O Lord, that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Whoa. (laughs) Think about that. I know, O Lord that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. That seems backwards. That's an incredible verse. Sometimes our impulse during the times of trial is to think that God has abandoned us and left us alone. But here we see that whenever God afflicts his people, it is actually a sign of his faithfulness. His faithfulness to make us more and more like Him in holiness and purity and love so that we may experience something more of the the God who can bring us a joy and a satisfaction that, that nothing else on earth can bring. Now, this doesn't mean that all affliction is a result, a direct result of, a, of, of personal sin. God's discipline isn't always a response to our personal sin. Sometimes God's discipline is meant to keep us from future sin through making us increasingly humble and holy through the difficulty as God refines and shapes our hearts. However, I think it's pretty safe to say that with Jacob, 
Much of what Jacob is about to experience is a direct result and consequence of his sins. This especially becomes evident in the ways that he will suffer in the hands of Laban. Folks, it is no coincidence that suddenly Jacob will be the one who is deceived and tricked and taken advantage of and exploited. All of the things that he has done to others now is coming back around to him. And he will sow the things that, he will reap the things that he has sown But this time of trial and exile that Jacob is about to enter into, as difficult as it will be, will also be God's precious grace to Jacob. Because this 20-year season of affliction is going to shape the rough edges from off of his heart so that he might become a completely different person than he is right now. The author of Hebrews, quoting Proverbs, says, "'My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him.'" For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. He disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This will be one of the main differences between Jacob and Esau. Esau, in some ways, appears to have a much easier life than Jacob. Uh, The next time we see Esau, he'll be very wealthy and powerful. Uh, We we don't see anything of Esau being treated with a heavy hand by God. And that's because Esau isn't God's son. It's only sons that are disciplined. And God's lack of discipline to Esau is actually a horrifying sign that he is outside of the people of God. But with Jacob, God has his eye fixed on Jacob. God loves Jacob, and God loves Jacob way too much to leave Jacob as he is. And God knows exactly what it will take to change Jacob. Ligon Duncan writes that if you... If you're a growing believer, you must not be confounded by the presence of trial, even when those trials are the result of your own sin, because God, in His inscrutable providence, designed even the consequences of our sin for blessing. It's hard to swallow the consequences of sin, and we think, Lord, can't you spare me this? And yet sometimes in God's goodness, He designs the very consequence of your sin to be that which grows you in grace. Wow, how good God is. That even as we are smarting and hurting from the consequences of sin, even in that, God is being faithful and working for our benefits. That's how He's going to work in Jacob's life. This is often how He works in your life. And the good news for Christians is that even in our sinful, messy, troubled, dysfunctional lives and in our less than perfect families, and even in our worst moments, God is on the move. God is at work. And there is nothing you can ever do that will separate you from the love of Christ and from His very good purposes to benefit you and bless you. So take hope and take heart in that. We'll see what God does with Jacob starting next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your precious word. And Father, we thank you for your amazing grace 
that not only saves wretches, but makes wretches beautiful and holy, more and more like your Son. Father in heaven, I pray for those this morning who they've come, and, and, and maybe they, they've come on the wake of a, of a season of, of just of disobedience and, and, and a season of, of stubbornness, Father, and they're now beginning to realize the folly of their ways. And Father, I, I pray that you would help them to understand the lesson that we learned in seeing Isaac's revival, that it is never too late to humble ourselves, be broken for, before God, and repent. It's never too late for your people to receive a spectacular work of grace in their lives. Father, I pray for anyone in this room who is an unbeliever who has spent a lifetime stiff-arming God, maybe spent a lifetime trying to mitigate the sins of the past through their own good works. Father, I pray that if there's any such person in this room, that that person would humble himself or herself now and bend the knee to you and receive the grace and provision that is found through Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for those who are going through a time of affliction and trial. I pray for those who feel the, the heavy hand of God's discipline. Father, I pray that you would help us to see elements of your grace and your mercy, even through the affliction. Before we were afflicted, we went astray, but now we keep your word. Father, help us to be patient through affliction, and help us to take heart that as you discipline us, it is a sign that we are sons and daughters, and you love us too much to leave us as we are. That takes great faith to believe, so help us to believe it now. In Jesus' name, amen.